Scripture reading will be from John 20, 27 through 29. John 20, 27 through 29. And he, and he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and took, my, and took at my hand and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And, through, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you, because you have seen me, you, are, you have believed. Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Good evening. It's good to be together this afternoon. We're thankful for another opportunity to worship our God and to think about some things from God's Word. If I were to ask you a question, why do you believe in God? Or why do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? What would your answer be? How would you go about trying to explain that to me? You might have to be honest and just say, I don't know, I just do. And I'd appreciate the honesty. Or you might say, well, the Bible says that God exists, so I believe it. Or the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, and so I have come to believe it. You might say, well, believing in Jesus, believing in God, it's a matter of faith. Uh, But I just really can't explain it. It is certainly something I do believe, but it's something that I can't really explain. How can you really explain faith? And those are some answers that I'm afraid sometimes we might give, and that might be the extent of our answers. But I think we need to be challenged a little bit to be able to give a more adequate answer in the face of skepticism. We are living in an increasingly secular society, in a world where it is more common to be an agnostic or an atheist or a skeptic, someone who is highly doubtful about the validity of the Bible and the existence of God and the person of Jesus, than it is to even be a believer or to go to church, where it's more common for us to run into those kinds of people who are going to be antagonistic against faith in Christ. And sadly, I've come to know that there are Christians who I don't think really help that. It was several years ago, but I was teaching a Bible class, and I came to find out that there were people who I thought would have known better, who were like, we don't need to validate anything that we believe we don't need corroborating evidence for anything we believe it's unnecessary 
I believe what the Bible says, and that's good enough for me. And I said, well, I'm glad that's good enough for you, but how would you ever be able to engage in a discussion with someone who does not believe the Bible? Because just because the Bible says so, that's not going to be a satisfactory answer for an atheist, for example. Because they don't even believe anything that the Bible says. They think it's just a work of fiction. And whenever Christians buy into this blind faith kind of attitude, where they don't need any sort of evidence for what they believe, it's formerly known as fideism, where they think they don't need this idea of historical validity or scientific validity or archaeological sources or evidence to help support the claims that the Bible makes. Now, I don't want to be very clear. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I believe what the Bible says, and if there is some discrepancy between science and the Bible, I'm going to side with the Bible. But I think it's also going to be that science hasn't caught up to the Bible, or it's that history and archaeological evidence has not caught up to the Bible. That's exactly what has happened with some archaeological claims, that the Bible... It referenced in the Old Testament the Hittite people. And we've known about the Hittites. Uh, probably the most famous Utah, uh, Hittite is Uriah the Hittite, right? The husband of Bathsheba. <clears throat> we've known about the Hittites for a long time. At least from the biblical portrayal of Hittites. But they were never found in archaeological sources or digs or historical Sources. You can never find anything about the Hittite people. And in the 1800s, that was the point of criticism against the Bible. You know, that was the thing people would say, well, you, you believe this Bible, yet we can't even find the Hittite people. It just made it all up. Well, guess what? In the late 1800s, they found the Hittite sources of them and their remnants in archaeological digs. And so what ended up being a, an argument against the Bible became an argument for the Bible. I think that's usually going to be the case. That if there is some kind of discrepancy, I think it's going to end up playing out in, over time in the Bible's favor. One time I was teaching a, a Bible class and I was talking about Herod the Great in gospel according to Matthew and how the Bible portrays Herod as this bloodthirsty king right that he is willing to murder even the little children the male babies and whenever you just read about Herod it's just kind of like well uh, that's a bold move because that's all that we really get in the picture of Herod in the Bible. But if you actually do a little bit of historical research into who Herod was, he did a lot of uh, maybe some good things, at least from an economic standpoint and infrastructure standpoint. He was a good leader from that vantage point. But there were also a lot of other things that he did that would have been shameful to his character but that is completely in harmony with what we learn about 
him in Matthew chapter 2 when he's willing to go kill all baby boys. And so I appealed to some historical sources outside of the Bible to show that this is really who Herod was. And I had a sister in Christ say, why do we even need to know this stuff? Why is this helpful? Why do you think this is even beneficial? Right there in the middle of the Bible class. I said, well, I think this is very beneficial for us because it validates the whole picture that we have of Herod in Scripture. And she told me, I don't think we need to know any of that stuff because I just believe my Bible. And then went on to say that I apparently didn't believe my Bible, that it wasn't good enough. I believe my Bible too. But we also must be prepared to defend our beliefs because of the world and the age in which we are in living in that is growing increasingly secular antagonistic to the Bible and believers. We have to be able to give a defense for what we believe. We have to not only be able to answer, do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, we have to also be able to add a why I believe in Jesus to be the Son of God. Now this evening, we're going to talk about who Jesus is. I think it's a critical thing and it's going to end in a place where I think it helps us understand some things that would be against atheism. But I also want us to recognize at the outset, because of the broad nature of this study, is that we don't have time to go and look at why we can believe in the Bible. In fact, back in October of last year, I did preach a sermon on the reliability of the Bible. If you um, are not able to uh, be here for that sermon. I encourage you to go back. I think it was October 9th of last year. Uh, and so go back and listen to that sermon. I think it was called, Are There Contradictions in the Bible? And we show that there's a great deal of evidence that supports the reliability of the New Testament. What I want you to recognize is that I'm going to be starting out with that premise that I believe the New Testament I believe the New Testament is a reliable source for us, and so we're going to make appeals to the New Testament to show who Jesus is. But if you have questions or doubts about that, go back and listen to that study. Or if you would rather have a, a conversation, a Bible study, let's sit down and study the Bible together. If you have questions or if you've never really known how to go about defending that, let's sit down and discuss those things. But as we think about who Jesus is, I want you to think and consider with me this evening about his identity, who he is, and how that relates so fundamentally to our faith and our salvation and everything that we believe as a Christian, as a child of God, as someone who carries the name of Christ with us. This is an important matter of our faith and our salvation. And so it's no wonder that some people would like to attack the identity and the person of Jesus. One um, man 
Frank Zindler. He used to be a president of uh, the American Atheist Society or group. He also was a member of the board of directors there. So I would think that, and they have this on their website, I would think this would be fairly indicative of the attitude of most atheists. And as he is trying to help go through some of the weeds, if you will, of trying to go through the historical evidence and, and sources of who Jesus is, he goes through some of these things in not a very careful way. And I think that's going to be seen very quickly. As he talks about the Old Testament, he basically says you can just skip over it. <laughs> that there's nothing there in the Old Testament. He says all the many examples of Old Testament predictions of Jesus are so silly that one need only look them up to see their irrelevance. He says you can basically just gloss right over it. As he continues into the New Testament, he's not much better here because he says it is clear that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke could not possibly have been written by an eyewitness of the tales they tell. <coughs> Both writers plagiarize <coughs> largely word for word up to 90% of the Gospel of Mark to which they add sayings of Jesus and would-be historical details, ignoring the fact that Matthew and Luke contradict each other in such critical details as the genealogy of Jesus, and thus cannot both be correct, we must ask why real eyewitnesses would have to plagiarize the entire ham, hocks, and potatoes of the story, contenting themselves with adding merely a little gravy, salt, and pepper a real eyewitness would have begun with a verse reading, Now, boys and girls, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus, the Messiah, the way it really happened. The story would be a unique creation. It is significant that it is only these two Gospels that purport to tell anything of Jesus' birth, childhood, or ancestry. Both can be dismissed as unreliable without further cause. We can know nothing of Jesus' childhood or origin. Now, maybe that would be convincing to somebody. I don't know. I thought it was really interesting that he, is, he gets so upset that Matthew and Luke, they looked at the Gospel of Mark. Yes, that's what a lot of Bible scholars would say. That's what a lot of commentators would say, that they sort of used Mark as a template or as an, uh, um, as an outline, and that they even borrowed some of the same sources and the same materials. I don't know if I, I really buy into all of that. But what I do know is what Luke tells me. In the Gospel of Luke, turn there. In Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, in the opening verses of Luke's account of the Gospel, he says this in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. 
What I want you to notice there is that Luke tells us that he does consult sources, doesn't he? <laughs> he says that he investigated this. Which, I don't know about you, if someone just starts telling me a tale or a story and they don't have any kind of sourcing to back it up, I'm always a little doubtful about it. Something tells me that he wants to create, he's creating a straw man here where he's just trying to set it up in this way that he thinks he would believe it. But if, you, if Luke really did what he thinks, he would dismiss it too because he doesn't have faith. So he says here that uh, Luke admits that I consulted other sources. I investigated this. I asked questions. I conducted interviews. You know, have you ever wondered how he gets so much information about the birth of John the Baptist and Zacharias and, and Elizabeth? Have you ever wondered how he got that information? Something tells me he had to sit down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, or somebody that knew about that. He tells us that he investigated it. And then the second thing is what this guy assumes is that Luke is an eyewitness. Luke doesn't call himself an eyewitness here, does he? <laughs> In fact, he talks about the eyewitnesses. In verse 2, he says, Just as those were handed down to us, to us, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants. So he's saying, I have been taught all of this from eyewitnesses. Do you see that? There's a distinction there. Luke never claimed to be an eyewitness to everything. And my whole point about all of this is that if that's how we're going to be so critical, uh, if that's our parameters of being critical of who Jesus is, then we're not being very careful, are we? We're not being very careful at all. What I found to be somewhat ironic also as I'm reading this guy, he had a lot of uh, footnotes. You know, if you've ever written, a, written a, or read a book where there's footnotes, you know, number one, number two, or maybe letters A, B, C, D. And then you have to go to the bottom of the page to see what the footnote is, and it's usually going to be a source from somebody else. What I found to be really ironic from this atheist is that he had a lot of sources. And I thought, man, that's not very creative here. Come on, guy, you need to have some original thought. Because that's what your whole basis is of dismissing Jesus. Is that Luke and Matthew aren't creative or they're not original enough. And so we can't know anything about Jesus' his childhood or his origin. I thought, well, whatever you say is I'm, I'm just going to dismiss it now because you have some sources here. This isn't original with you. And so it's unreliable. Richard Dawkins the uh, infamous scientist, atheist. Uh, he says this. He says, the point I wanted to make was that Jesus was a good man and that a man of his time had to be religious because everybody was. 
But I suspect that if he had the knowledge we have today, he probably would have been an atheist and he probably would have been a good man. Which I found very ironic that atheists are even wanting to use Jesus here in, in, to support their cause. You have atheists and skeptics. You have these people who are very antagonistic. They don't even want you to believe in the presentation of Scripture of who Jesus is. Well, I think that's somewhat interesting. They want to attack the historical Jesus. They want, to, want you to dismiss the Old Testament. They want you to dismiss the New Testament. There's a lot of other things that we could look at. But what they want you to do is believe that belief in Jesus, even the historical uh, Jesus then it seems silly and infantile or vain, or as Dawkins, they want to use Jesus as someone who would be on their side. And that just doesn't work. What I found interesting, and they want to dismiss historical references like Tacitus in his Annals of Rome, where he references Christians, he references Christ and Pilate, and Tiberius, the Caesar during that time, and Judea, all these historical references. In his account of the burning of Rome, this is what he wrote. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular here is a historical reference where he's not even in a flattering way talking about Christians. You can tell he's a little perturbed by this, can't you? But as he's talking about Nero and the burning of Rome and how Nero tried to pin it on Christians and he had them tortured, he talks about Christians and how this came from Christus or Christ. And how he paid the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. You have historical figures here that are firmly planting all of this in historical reference as something that really happened. And he says it has, this has grown from Judea to even Rome. Now, why do I point out all of this? I don't think Tacitus was being very friendly. I think he's being a little hostile. In fact, that's what a lot of people call this, is a hostile source that would show at least some historical reference from someone who's not being very friendly or flattering towards Christ or Christians, that he at least still has a very historical frame of reference here that plants Jesus... In Judea, where there are people that, 
he, he doesn't even call it a resurrection. He calls it a mischievous superstition. But belief in the resurrection of Christ and how that has gone throughout the world. He places all of this right here for us to at least see and understand that there is historical validity to our claims to the resurrection of Jesus and to the person of Christ. So what does the New Testament have to say about who Jesus is? Well, the Gospels, they clearly paint a picture of Jesus as the divine Son of God, as God with us. In Matthew chapter 1, we learn that the name of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus is God. But I think there are some even more subtle points of reference that help us see that claim very clearly. In Mark chapter 2, there is an occasion here when Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed. And you'll remember that this, on this occasion there were some men that brought this paralytic to Jesus and they were unable to bring him into the house where Jesus was. And so they had to go through the roof to let this man down. And in... Mark chapter 2 and in verse 5 it says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then that just stirs up the crowd. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they understood the claim that Jesus was saying whenever he made that statement, Son, your sins are forgiven. They understood that this is a claim to deity. And Jesus then says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, or get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he does that. Jesus performs this miracle to prove who he was, that he has the, the authority and the claim to deity. But I want you to notice there is a description that Jesus applies to himself. It's Jesus' favorite description of himself. And it's the title, the Son of Man. We don't have time to go back and look at it, but I would encourage you to go back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 13 and 14, you see that the Son of Man is placed on the throne in this kingdom of God. He is placed there. He receives worship. And he is ruling over the kingdom of God. Jesus is taking that title and applying it to himself. This divine person who is placed there with authority to receive worship and have authority in the kingdom. Jesus takes that title and applies it to himself. In Matthew chapter 12, we see that title once again. In Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 8, this time that Jesus has a scuffle with the Pharisees about some questions pertaining to the Sabbath day. And Jesus makes this claim in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8. 
when he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so if you have that understanding of Daniel as sort of the background to that, that is a divine person in the book of Daniel. It's someone who is, a, is God, who takes the throne and receives worship. That Jesus is calling himself God there, not explicitly, but implicitly there. But then notice the claim in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying and implying that He is the one who instituted the Sabbath. He is the one who can rightly determine what is appropriate or inappropriate action on the Sabbath day. And that only makes sense if Jesus is God. In the book of Exodus, in the, tw- in the 20th chapter, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20 and in verse 8, that's where, we, where Moses has received the Ten Commandments on the tablets and he gives them to the children of Israel. And it is God who is speaking to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Then notice this. I don't, this had always escaped my notice about what Jesus' argument is in, in Mark or Matthew chapter 12. But what I want you to see is that Jesus, as he says, I am Lord, or the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the Son of Man. And that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he's saying, I'm, you, you take me all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. He's God, right? Then notice what the Sabbath day and this law is rooted in. In verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You go all the way back to the creation. That's the implicit argument of what Jesus is saying there in Matthew chapter 12. Not only is he the one who has instituted the Sabbath day, he's also saying, I am the one who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus says, I am the creator. I am God. Jesus claimed to be God. The synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they prove that. They teach that Jesus is God. Then you have the Gospel of John, which is a very unique gospel in its approach in so many different ways. But in the Gospel of John, notice how John opens up his gospel account. In John chapter 1 and in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This word, the divine logos, he says that the word was God. It is divine in nature and in essence and in character. But you might be thinking, well, what's this word? Well, he says it's a he in verse 2. <laughs> he was in the beginning with God. 
You skip down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we looked at this morning in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, and in verses 56 and 58, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees, and he makes them very upset. As he's discussing with the Jews in John chapter 8 and verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He's saying that everything that Abraham believed has come to fruition because of me, because of what I'm doing here. That upsets them, but not quite as much as what happens in verse 58. Because the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How has Abraham seen you? And so, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying, you take me all the way back before Abraham was born, and I existed. That is an obvious claim to being God. The Apostle Paul, as you continue on throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes very clear claims that Jesus is God. In the book of in Titus, in Titus chapter 2, in Titus chapter 2, as he's t- talking about the grace of God and how it has uh, instructed us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously, he says in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Jesus is very clearly identified as God in Philippians chapter 2 as well. In Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 6 when Paul is talking about Christ Jesus, how he existed in the form of God. I don't know about you, I don't have the form of God because I'm not God. Jesus existed in the form of God because he is God. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1 and in verses uh, 1 beginning there, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom Also, he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That Jesus is the exact representation of God. How? Why? Because he is God. That's the only way that makes any sense, isn't it? The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 1 of the opening of this epistle, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And then in the book of Jude, that short little book, Jude makes a very interesting statement. In Jude 4, verse 4, Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to see how he describes Jesus, the titles that he gives to him, Master and Lord, right? And then in the very next verse, he's going to use the term Lord again, okay? In reference to Jesus. But notice what he says in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you though, you know all things once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. The book of Exodus, all the events there, what does Jude do? He says it was Jesus who did that. How? Because Jesus is God. You look at the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation shows that Jesus receives worship. In Revelation chapter 5 in particular with the lamb that had been slain, uh, he receives his worship in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb... Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. What I want you to think about is that everyone is praising the one who sits on the throne, the Father. And in this very same time, in the very same breath, they're also praising the Lamb. If Jesus is not God, then that is blasphemy, isn't it? <laughs> it's blasphemy. The fact that Jesus receives worship, we sometimes can gloss over that. But what we learn in the book of Acts is that men are not to receive worship. Remember when Peter came to Cornelius and Cornelius had been given this vision and told, hey, call for Peter, have him come preach to you. And Cornelius goes and he bows down and worships at Peter's feet and he says, nope, you don't do that. I too am just a man. At the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, John makes the mistake of bowing down and offering worship to an angel. In Revelation chapter 22 and in verses 8 and 9, notice what the angel says. As John is writing here, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. 
You worship God because God alone is the only being worthy to receive worship. If you're only commanded to worship God, and we also see pictures uh, of these visuals, these pictures of people worshiping Jesus, is that not an implication that Jesus is God? That's what the New Testament teaches us about who Jesus is. And I want you to think about what all this means. And why this all really matters. Because if Jesus is God, then God is, right? Isn't that a logical deduction? If, then? If Jesus is God, which I think the Bible portrays that very clearly, then God exists. You see that in the divine names and titles that are given to Jesus, that divine works that are applied to Jesus, that he's the creator. He's the recipient of worship. Now, don't you understand? Now, don't you see why we need, why atheists need to attack Jesus? Why they need to get rid of the historical Jesus? Because if Jesus is God, that's what the New Testament teaches us. God exists. goes against everything that atheists teach and say and argue. But if God does not exist, then Jesus cannot be God. The opposite would be true, right? If they are right, let's say, then Jesus cannot be God, and the New Testament would be just a fairy tale. It's a bunch of myth and fable. That should not be believed in the New Testament or the Bible. It's just a product of man. That's why everything hinges on who Jesus is. Everything does. And that's why I asked you at the very beginning... Who is Jesus? Who do you believe that Jesus is? Do you believe that he's just a good teacher? Someone who had some good morals? And someone who had some novel ideas, especially for his time and his era, and yet you don't really think he is God. Maybe you don't want to believe that he is God. Maybe you just think he's a good moral philosopher. Okay. Maybe you think that you know, I like a lot of what he says, but I'm not going to follow them. Okay? 
But what I want you to see is that the New Testament and Jesus himself did not just claim that he's a good moral teacher. That's not really an option to believe. Jesus believed that he was God in the flesh. Jesus believed that he was the divine Son of God. And that's what all the New Testament writers believed. Either he is what he said he was, or he is a liar, or worse, he was delusional. As some have said, he was either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Because your very salvation, your very soul hinges on how you would answer that question. That's the all-important question that Thomas answered. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, after Jesus' resurrection, you have Thomas, who we oftentimes call Doubting Thomas. I think we give him a bad rap sometimes. Probably a little bit unfairly, too. Because I think Thomas just wanted some evidence. He heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He, didn't want, he wasn't going to believe it until he saw it. And Jesus told him, Thomas, take your hand. Touch my hand. See my hands. Put your hand into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And after he did that, after Thomas saw who Jesus was, that he really was raised from the dead, he said, my Lord and my God. came to believe Jesus was everything that he said he was. And he had to stop and just realize, here's a guy who did not believe any of this beforehand. So what would convince him to change his mind unless it was real? Unless it was what really had happened? That Jesus was back. He was raised from the dead. The man that he saw led by Roman soldiers to Golgotha. And hanging on that cross. And whose body went into the tomb. And to be raised three days later. Unless all of that had happened, why would Thomas change his mind? 
And then notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's you and me, isn't it? We don't have the benefit that Thomas did to see Jesus and to touch his side or his hand. I don't think Jesus is saying it's bad to have evidence there or support for what you believe. He's saying there's going to be a lot of people that come after you, Thomas. They don't have the benefit of being right here and right now. But you know what? We have the testimony of those who did see. We have it written right here and recorded for us in the New Testament. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to believe in him as the son of God? As God who came in the flesh and who died for you so that you could have eternal life. Believe in Jesus Christ. We urge you and implore you. We encourage you to give your life to him as your Lord and as your master. To serve him and obey him. You can come to him this evening. He's willing to forgive you of your sins. To save you and to give you the hope of eternal life. If you would repent and obey him. Maybe it is that you are a child of God, but you've not been loyal to Christ. You've not been living faithfully for Him. Will you not repent and confess your faults and pray that God would forgive you? He's just and He's merciful and He's willing to extend His grace and His mercy to you once again. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?